I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. is Patricia Musum, also known as Trish. She's a Western-trained medical doctor and pioneer in the synthesis of science, holistic health, and contemporary spirituality. And she's the founder of Transformational Medicine, a whole-person approach to health and well-being. And she's the author of a wonderful book, Beyond Medicine, a physician's revolutionary prescription for achieving absolute health and finding inner peace which we talked about last winter in a series of interview conversations. So Trish, welcome back to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you, Tonio, for having me back. I really enjoyed our conversations last winter, and I'm honored that you want to have me back and chat some more. Thank you. Well, I enjoyed those conversations as well, and this is a wonderful topic to talk about. And this time, we're doing this because you've created a new eight-week live online course, which will actually be beginning this coming Tuesday, March 28th at 2 p.m. Eastern time. So how is this eight-week course different, let's say, from the experience of reading your book? 
First, Tonio, thank you for offering me the opportunity to share about the course. The course is drawing from the teachings of my book, and it's going to allow people to experience firsthand in a collaborative community working through the teachings and the tools of the book. So it's a live course that meets eight times over the period of eight weeks. And the course also includes lots of resources and teaching materials and tools that come from the book that people have access to on a course website. So we meet live and then there's interactions on the website and we have an online community for people to participate and share and find practical support as they move through the course. So it's a community of students working together with me to move through the teachings of the course rather than just reading the book on their own. Mm -hmm. And I noticed because I went to your website and I looked it over and I was really surprised to see how inexpensive the course was. Oh, I'm glad that you find that. I'm glad. I hope that makes it appealing to people. Well, I'm going to be really honest with you. I actually have been teaching online courses since last year. Um, I've been teaching a lot of online classes, but I started teaching online courses last year, but I was doing it all on my own. I didn't really know much about how to create and develop and promote an online course. So I actually took a course myself (laughs) to learn how to create, develop, market, promote, and launch an online course. So I took this wonderful course um, that's run by a man named Chris Kyle, who does a lot of work in helping people who are involved in contemporary spirituality and holistic health and personal growth arenas, get their word and messages and teachings out into the world. And I really like to reach more people. So I took Chris's course. I'm still in Chris's course. And Chris's course taught me how to create, develop, market, promote, and launch my online course. And basically the fee schedule is based on his suggestions on what we need to offer and how we need to make it accessible to a widespread community of potential students. So in this course, I would love for you to talk about the key elements to your approach to what you call achieving absolute health that people will actually learn in an interactive way during this course. And also how it differs from like what you learned in medical school? Sure. Well, your first question is really addresses the essence of my teachings and the key principles of my teachings and key theme of my book. And that is that absolute health is a term that I've used to describe simply peace of mind or inner peace. It's a state that we need to be in for healing to happen. The body will not heal otherwise if it's ailing If the mind is not calm and the body's not relaxed. I also explain to people that absolute health is our essential nature. We were born to be in a state of peace and we lose connection with that essential nature because of the stuff, as we say, that happens to us as we grow into life as young people and experience the world around us. So in the very beginning of the course, I introduce people to this concept of absolute health. I also introduce them to the concept of healing and introduce them to the notion that we find this path to inner peace or absolute health, that place we need to be for healing to happen, for bodily return to well-being to happen, 
by being, not doing, by being, not doing. It's not by trying to get well or trying to change things in our lives. It's first by surrendering to the present moment and experiencing all that is in that present moment, no matter what we're experiencing, whether it's an unpleasant thought or emotion or a sensation, that we actually experience a place of peace that we come to by the experience of being present. So I also explained that this isn't just about addressing health issues. My teachings are an offering to help people address whatever may be going on in their lives. It may be a health issue or it may be something else. It may be a difficult situation that they're dealing with in relationship or maybe money matters or maybe life path issues. Whatever's going on, our way to freedom from our challenges is always literally a stop, a pause, and a breath away. It comes from being here now in the moment. That is where we experience that place I call absolute health or inner peace, where we need to be for healing to happen. And it's also where we need to be, that place of peace of mind and bodily rest, to get clear, to find solutions, to know what to do, to know where to move forward in a way if we have to, if we're dealing with another challenging situation in our lives. And I teach people how to experience inner peace using my five absolute health tools. And all that I just described to you is what consists module one. Module one is called home sweet home, finding your way to absolute health and inner peace. And your second question, how this differs from Western medicine, that's a great question. And my answer could go on for hours. First of all, Western medicine and also say Western culture as well, because I'm talking about offering tools and teachings, not just for health, but for whatever somebody is going through in their life. Western medicine and Western culture teach us that we have to be doing, that we have to try, and that often it involves struggle to get well, and that often involves doing and trying and struggling to get well, if we're not well, if we're ailing in some way, or to change things if we're dealing with a challenging circumstance in our life. And so I'm saying that that's essentially a myth. We can release the trying, we can let go of the struggle, because all of this, this home, returning to that place I call absolute health, which is really a return home to a peaceful place, is simple and effortless. It arises by stopping the doing and just being in the moment. And also a second point to that is that when we try, when we effort, when we struggle, when we're trying to make things happen, whether it's getting better, trying to figure out what to do or change a situation in our life, the very act of trying creates stress in our mind and that creates stress in our body. And that state of stress in the mind and that state of stress in the body completely inhibits the potential for healing. The body cannot get well, cannot restore itself to better health if the mind is not calm and if the body is not relaxed. So if we're trying, we're creating stress. We're creating mind-body physiologic stress. And in fact, every thought we experience, every emotion we experience is either creating a state of ease in our body and our mind or a state of dis-ease in our mind and our body. And it doesn't mean we can't ever have difficult thoughts or difficult feelings. It's how we experience and work with them that can shift the effect they have on our mind and our psyche. So that was a short version, Antonio. Mm -hmm. I could go on more because there's there's more to the course that definitely 
is in contrast to what I learned in my Western medical training. Well, another aspect of Western medicine is that it's based on, quote unquote, evidence-based physical medical interventions, whether it's pills, medicines, surgeries, or other physical manipulations of the body. And while I imagine that those could go hand in hand with your approach, that again, those approaches are doing approaches, and they are based on making an effort to change circumstances. And it sounds to me like what you're doing is you're laying a foundation for an understanding that first we have to come to a state of of peace of mind or, or a state of inner peace with whatever's going on inside of us or in our lives before we can try to take any outer action and expect it to be effective in in any meaningful way. Yes, exactly. That was beautifully put. And I'll just also mention that Western medicine's evidence-based clinical practices are not science-based. They're based on clinical research, which has many, many, many limitations. And it's important not to assume because a clinical research study relates a particular effector with a particular outcome that it's actually the truth. And I also need to say I'm not dismissing Western medicine. Western medicine has fantastic utility, and I'm not opposed to using Western medicine. But what I'm saying is that healing, which is different than curing or suppressing symptoms, which we do very well in Western medicine, but actually for the body to get better, the body-mind needs to be in a state of rest and relaxation because healing will not happen. The body cannot get better if it's in a state of physiologic stress, it just won't happen. And if we're needing to know what to do, and I'm explaining this is very important to make this point, it's not that we never take action. It's not that we never do anything. We just wait around for things to happen, or we wait around to heal. But healing and clarity and solutions around how that healing will occur And things changing, things transforming in our lives, if we're dealing with a difficult relationship or financial issues or something else, don't happen by just taking action and trying to fix things. We first have to stop to pause and experience that peace of mind and relaxation in the body. And that state allows us to know what to do. That state brings us to a place where we'll get clarity and solutions. We'll know what to do without trying. It's really all about cultivating ease of mind and rest of body. And from that place of ease of mind and rest of body, we're in the place to receive information without efforting. We're in the place for the body to restore and repair to get well, because we're toggling on what's called the parasympathetic nervous system when we're in the state of rest and relaxation. And then we we know what to do without trying. I'd like to touch on the placebo effect, because there have been fascinating studies of the placebo effect, not just with pills and medicines, but with surgeries where they do a little incision, but don't do any surgery. And people have physiological healing in their body because they believed that they received the surgery that was touted to heal whatever their condition was. And that's something that has been repeated many times. So it's based on the uh, quote unquote scientific method and evidence based medicine. And 
Could you talk about how the placebo effect relates to this cultivating of inner peace or peace of mind? Sure. And yes, what you cited is very powerful research, and there's an abundance of research on placebo. And the notion is that mind is powerful medicine. Our minds are our medicine. Our minds have the potential to heal us. And what we believe, we can manifest. And as it relates to absolute health and peace of mind, again, it's about cultivating an experience of presence, an experience of presence. And when we believe something, when we have a belief that, oh, I had the surgery, so my damaged knee is going to feel better, or my rotator cuff in my shoulders no longer going to bother me anymore, we're believing that. And when we're in a state of belief, we're in a height of suspension of fear or worry or disbelief. We're in a state of belief, acceptance, and really a state of peace. And also another fascinating thing is that they've found that many people start to feel better as soon as they either go to see their doctor or just decide that they're going to go see their doctor. Yeah, and that's a very interesting phenomenon that's that's observed. And I would say that once we make a decision like that, we're creating ease for ourselves because what leads us up to seek out assistance may be a kind of worry or fear or a trying effect. So when we've made a decision and we're on that path, we're letting go of that worry that might have been there, that fear or that trying, that struggling, that emphasizing effort. So we're really surrendering to a solution. And in our minds, we have a solution or we have some assistance. So when we have some assistance, that's a kind of surrendering and letting go of the struggle and the trying. And it's interesting how, I mean, I experienced that in my own life, like when I experience some kind of physical condition in my body, I usually become afraid. You know, I just have this fear response and it's coupled with this sense of like, I don't know what's going on and I don't know what to do about it. And then I start doing research or I start talking to people or whatever. And fear is a huge thing, not only in terms of medical conditions, but it affects every aspect of our lives. Yes. And I just want to share that it's a very common and very normal and natural response to have that fear response when you sense something in your body that's awry. It's really a response that's hardwired. We're hardwired to respond to bodily experiences and external experiences, meaning things that are happening around us. And that turns on our brainstem and our amygdala to alert us to, my goodness, well, we need to be cautious or we need to explore this. So it's not uncommon and there's nothing unnatural about experiencing an emotion of fear around a bodily symptom because it, it draws our attention to it. But what I do want to say is when that fear or worry persists, it becomes counterproductive and unhelpful and it creates physiologic stress in the body. And that physiologic stress will impede healing, as I explained before. And I have a dog and I live in New York City and I walk my dog on the streets of New York. 
And I need to be vigilant and alert because if my dog is going to encounter another dog and there might be a dog to dog aggressive incident, I need to be able to be alert to that. So my amygdala, that's the part of the brainstem that's essentially the thermostat for emotional experiences gets turned on and tuned up to be aware of any potential vigilance. If my dog is about to be, um, interacting with another dog in some aggressive sort of way. So that's very helpful for us to be responsive to the emotional thermostat. But when that persists, and it can create a type of stress that persists, that doesn't allow us to feel ease around it all, then it can be not a supportive and nourishing experience and protective experience, in other words. And my understanding of this is that this is kind of parallel to our need for sleep, that we need to have a certain amount of sleep every night so that our body can recover from our day. And it sounds very parallel to our body's need to rest in the parasympathetic state, you know, to have breaks from our continual sympathetic activation that we experience throughout the day. And there's probably a huge connection between sleep and that parasympathetic activation that helps us to heal and also to rest our bodies so that we can start fresh in the morning. Could you talk more about all of that and those dynamics? Yes, thank you. Those are very good points you made. And what I'd like to say is that, of course, sleep is a time for rest and restoration, and it's a time where healing happens. But it's not the only time that healing can happen. And what's most important is that we understand what I call the necessity of lifestyle medicine. And this is actually one of what I call our four primary medicines. And I teach about them in the book, and I'll be describing them, and people will have the opportunity to work through them in the course. Lifestyle medicine is our second primary medicine. How we go about our day makes a tremendous difference. It can either keep us well and get us well, or it can make us sick and keep us sick. How we go about our day, lifestyle as a form of medicine, is even more potent than a physician's prescriptions. So while sleep can be that time where ultimately the body rests and restores, if we're going throughout our day without taking time to pause and rest our mind, and rest our body. We're creating a state of continual sympathetic stimulation, which is pushing our body mind into a state of dis-ease and facilitating and enabling disease. And it can keep us from getting well and staying well, and it can make us sick and keep us sick. And in fact, I'll just share with you before our time together today, I was out in the park. For those of you listening, I live in New York City, but right across from Central Park, which is a lovely urban oasis. And I go there as much as I possibly can with my dog, who is very good at reminding me that lifestyle is important medicine when he thinks I've been at my desk or on a call too long. And when we came back, I needed a little bit of time just to pause before you and I were going to get on our conversation. And that's really lifestyle medicine. I had a little snack and I lay down and I closed my eyes and I set my alarm to make sure I'd be up in time. And I did some gentle abdominal breathing, which is a way to toggle on the parasympathetic nervous system because I was feeling kind of drained and weary from a long call I'd been on earlier without a pause, just moving on to sitting in the sun with my dog. So I came back and I lay down and I stopped my mind 
and I rested my body. And when it was time to get up, I was in a completely different place. I was restored. I was nourished. So again, while sleep is the ultimate time for healing and repair, if we don't take time to pause for our mind and our body during the day, we're not supporting our healing in the best possible way. And of course, nowadays, there's a a lot of talk about meditation and mindfulness, but a lot of people have a really difficult time sitting still, and they can actually experience meditation and mindfulness as being rather stressful. So that would be kind of counterproductive. So it sounds like from what you're saying, there are many other ways to access and, and to activate our parasympathetic rest state. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just share that I wasn't meditating when I came back. I was lying down and I fell asleep. That was my intention. I wanted to lie down and do some belly breathing, which I knew would take me into a state of sleep. So I wasn't meditating. I was just belly breathing to quiet my mind and my body. And then my body just surrendered to what it was needing, which was a little mini sleep. And even for five or seven minutes. And yes, many people do have a hard time with meditation, particularly mindfulness meditation. And yes, there are many ways to cultivate that place of peace internally. And for people who tend to have monkey minds, but I'll also have to say that having a monkey mind where the thoughts jump from branch to branch is a natural element of the mind. It's how the mind behaves sometimes. But because of that, if one is tending to have that experience when they're exploring meditation, there are particular forms of meditation for the most part that can be easier to do. Guided meditations are much more powerful for somebody who's wanting to explore meditation. They're having a hard time with the experience of watching their thoughts. Mindfulness meditation refers to the type of process where we just watch our thoughts. But there are other types of meditations that involve an intention or a mantra or they're guided. And those are much easier to kind of sink into. And of course, there are other tools that we can use to toggle on that relaxation system. We can play, we can dance, we can sing, we can do what moves us, what feels good. We can watch children playing, we can watch puppies playing, we can be in nature, we can hug a tree, all those experiences can toggle on our feel-good chemicals in the brain and can toggle on that parasympathetic nervous system. So it's not all about simply being still and watching our thoughts, but it's about being present in the moment. It's about being present in the moment. So if I'm playing with my dog, I need to be playing with my dog and not scrolling on my phone at the same time, checking an email, whatever I'm doing. If I'm walking, I need to be walking and not talking on my phone, as many of us do in New York City. So it's all about being present in the here and now. And that comes to another point, which means no multitasking, no multitasking, the brain, the mind and the body, these were not designed to function optimally when we multitask. And in fact, multitasking, while many of us can do it well, including myself, when I confess, sometimes I do it, it's ultimately not supportive for our brains, for our bodies and our health. It ends up compromising our memory, makes us less cognitively functional. In other words, makes us less smart, less functional. And it actually creates stress in the system. It creates inflammation in the system and depresses the immune system. So we were designed to focus on doing one thing at a time. And that's what I mean when I talk about being here now, being present. 
with whatever we're experiencing in the moment. Washing dishes and only washing the dishes. So all these things that you mentioned, like being present with your dog out in the park, enjoying nature, dancing, playing, these are all actually what you would call forms of medicine then. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a difficult pill for some people to swallow, pun intended, who have been programmed into believing that, you know, you go to a doctor and they give you physical medicine or they do a physical intervention as a form of medicine, as a form of healing. Yes. And that's not to say that that physical intervention and that healing partnership or that practitioner patient partnership. And I actually like to avoid the term patient because I often find it can imply kind of disempowering relationship. It doesn't mean that approach can't be a path to healing. But when we're just taking a medicine for a symptom, we're not putting our body mind self into the state for healing that symptom. If somebody has, for example, an ulcer and they're taking medication for their ulcer, but they're not exploring their emotions and their lifestyle and their nutrition and their relationship and their life and their purpose. And are they happy or they are unhappy? We're just medicating the symptom and keeping them sick with the ulcer. We're just treating the symptom, not facilitating healing. And healing is always a return home to inner peace where that healing can happen. So again, I don't want to dismiss the utility of Western medicine, but we were taught myself and my fellow medical students, symptoms and conditions with interventions for the most part, with medications, with surgery, with other types of treatments. And those aren't necessarily facilitating healing. They're facilitating the suppression of symptoms. And often when we suppress symptoms, the disease or illness or symptoms can go deeper and manifest in other areas of the body. I'm talking with Patricia Musum. She's a Western-trained medical doctor and pioneer in the synthesis of science, holistic health, and contemporary spirituality, and is the founder of Transformational Medicine, a whole-person approach to health and well-being, as well as the author of Beyond Medicine, a physician's revolutionary prescription for achieving absolute health and finding inner peace. Another issue in Western medicine that hopefully things have been changing more recently, but many doctors are notorious for having really poor, quote unquote, bedside manner. Yes, you know, I think it depends on where the doctors are in the world and what their field of specialization is. And I'll share, I've been a patient myself many times over. I actually write about it in the book. I wrote the book for many, many reasons. One of them is I hope people can explore my teachings and tools and not have to go through what I went through (laughs) to learn about how to get well and stay well and how to get better when I'm not feeling okay. But yeah, we're not taught traditionally how to interact with patients. It is changing in medical education. I would say in the field of family practice, there's much more focus on the doctor-patient relationship and family practice as a specialty is a very whole person, whole life type of approach because it views somebody's health in relationship to their environment, to their relationships, to the world around them, and in particular, the people in their lives. So family practitioners are generally more skilled at navigating the communication aspects of the doctor-client relationship. 
But yeah, for the most part, that's not something that's focused on in our training. And it can be detrimental to the doctor-client relationship. I know that I've had some health issues and I had difficult relationships with practitioners that created more stress for me, in fact, and that stress only exacerbates physical issues that are going on in the body. In the course, there's one of the modules in which we address just that. It's a module that's called, Sometimes We Need a Little Help, Healing Practices, Healing Practitioners, and Healing Partnerships. And as I said earlier, again, I don't dismiss the utility of Western medicine. I embrace all medicines as helping us to find a way home to healing and to well-being. And we definitely need help sometimes. Our guru lies within, but sometimes we need help. And in this module, I talk about healing partnerships with practitioners and how to best cultivate them so that they're supportive and nourishing and how to identify the type of healing relationship with a practitioner that works best for you. Yeah, that's such an important part of the doctor-patient relationship is advocating for oneself with our medical practitioner and standing up for what we need and what we want from them rather than just completely deferring to whatever they have to say about, you know, whatever we're bringing to them. Yes, yes, absolutely. And it's so important. And The doctor-client relationship is a powerful healing tool in itself. In fact, the partnership can be the conduit to healing, irrespective of whatever that practitioner is offering the patient. Again, it's about belief in getting well, belief in feeling better. So that practitioner-client relationship is a powerful placebo, if you will. In fact, it's an interesting quote from Voltaire. Voltaire said something that I find very profound. He said, it is the physician's role to amuse the patient long enough so nature has time to heal. It is the physician's role to amuse the patient long enough so nature has time to heal. And, you know, our Western medical culture, in fact, our Western culture really tends to horribleize the decline of the body tends to horribleize illness. We horribleize dying and death as to be unwished for events. So as a result, we do cultivate an environment of fear around illness, around bodily unwellness. We cultivate an environment of fear around illness, around dying and around death. That's an issue that is really problematic in Western medical culture because we can create fear amongst the people we serve because of how we think about bodily health and less optimal bodily health and dying in death. And I always say that if we could be fearless in the face of illness, if we could be fearless in the face of dying in death, then we could truly have an opportunity to return to better health because that fearlessness is our path to healing. And the bottom line also is, and this may sound harsh, what I'm about to say is, look, we're all going to (laughs) die. Well, this is a terminal condition, this living in a body. None of us gets out of this world alive, at least in our physical body. But if we could cultivate a fearlessness around the notion that we leave our bodies, that fearlessness can heal us, can bring us to a place of ease. And also in that doctor-client relationship, doctors can actually make a conscious effort to create a meaningful connection between the doctor and client that can have a life of its own, even in the face of a fatal disease or a chronic disease or conditions that they may not feel that they can do anything about themselves. 
Yes, absolutely. That's the power and the potential of the relationship. And I'll share also something that Hippocrates, who's considered one of the founding fathers of Western medicine, said. He said, it is more important for the physician to know the person who has the disease than the disease the person has. It is more important for the physician to know the person who has the disease than the disease the person has. And I want to follow up on what you said about a disease that may be chronic or fatal. It's very, very important to suspend our beliefs about what we're told about certain conditions, diseases, and their prognoses that Western medicine tells us. I'm going to make a very, very strong statement. I'm going to say this. All diseases, all conditions are theoretically curable, irrespective of what Western medicine tells us. Even diseases that Western medicine deems are terminal or incurable. These are actually incorrect statements that come from my medical culture. Does that mean everybody can heal from those diseases? Not necessarily. But what I'm saying is we're led to believe myths about the potential for healing. We all have an unlimited capacity and potential for healing, no matter what it is we're experiencing, irrespective of the diagnosis. And there is a wide body, wide arena of research documenting what we're calling supposedly remarkable cures, remarkable remissions. But what they are really is the natural order of healing that occurs when we allow healing to happen, when we can facilitate true healing. Again, does it mean everybody who's going to move through that process is going to heal, not necessarily so. But when somebody is told you have a condition and that is chronic, and they believe that, that's very likely that their condition is going to be chronic because that's what their doctor is telling them. And that is a danger that we experience as being consumers of Western healthcare when we as physicians are taught to have certain beliefs about certain conditions, that they're incurable or that they're chronic. And they need to be managed in a particular way so they can be dealt with. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to promise anybody that I can help you heal no matter what's going on, but I'm going to promise you that it is theoretically possible. And I want people to be open to this belief because if you're open to that belief, then there's a possibility to make it happen. If you're not open to it, it's not going to happen. And the way we deal with our disbeliefs is we surrender and we lean into our disbeliefs. I always ask people to suspend your disbelief. There's a chapter in my book where I write about the miracles, the miracles of healing that I've borne witness to and other miracles. And I say, please suspend your disbelief because I want you to hang on to this notion that these miracles are possible so you can open yourself to the miraculous possibilities for healing in your own life. Because when you're close to the possibilities, you're close to the possibility. And there's a lot of talk about how healers don't actually heal, that the real healer is inside of us, and that all we have to do is give our bodies the space and the state of peace or silence within which natural healing can happen, and that our bodies actually know how to heal ourselves, way beyond what we might know or have learned in our limited lifetimes or or in the limits of medical science. Yes, that was beautifully, beautifully put, Tonio. Our healer lies within our body, mind, spirit, if you will, for those who accommodate that notion and aspect of ourselves, knows what to do. And healers don't heal us. Healers are conduits to helping us to access that state that we need to be in for healing to happen. Healers help us to access that state where healing happens. When we get out of the way, healing can happen. And yes, our body minds have a miraculous wisdom and know how to heal. 
And doctors have a tremendous amount of power because we've actually been taught to give doctors all this power. It's very similar to the way religious people give priests a lot of power. And when a doctor gives a person a fatal diagnosis, it's very much like a priest telling someone that they're going to go to hell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's basically, I'm going to sound blunt here, it's a death sentence. And I think it's an egregious thing to do to tell somebody they have a fatal diagnosis. It's actually incorrect, as I said earlier. It may be that that person may not heal from that particular diagnosis, but no diagnosis is fatal. There's always a potential for healing. Right, beyond what we might believe or even imagine. Exactly, exactly. And I share stories in my book of just such healings. And the literature is full of these quote-unquote miraculous healings, but they're only miraculous when those stories are juxtaposed to Western medical belief about these diseases and physical conditions. Yes, absolutely. And I'll also comment that I like to call them seemingly miraculous because they're not really miracles. They're the natural order of things. These seemingly miraculous healings, these seemingly miraculous events, the seemingly miraculous experiences of consciousness. This is another topic entirely that I talk about in my book. The seemingly miraculous experiences and the potential of our mind, of our body's power to heal, they're only seemingly miraculous. They're actually the natural order of things when we allow nature to proceed in nature's way. They're in the natural order of things when we get out of the way. That's how healers facilitate healing. Yeah. And again, this is bringing to my mind an old teaching from an old book by John Lilly. From the center of the cyclone, he basically distilled his understanding of all these dynamics down to one simple formula in which he said, what we believe to be true either is true or becomes true within the limits of the mind. (laughs) That's marvelous. But that's just the first part. The second part is in the province of the mind, there are no limits. That is marvelous. That's marvelous. Thank you for sharing that. I never heard that quote from him. It reminds me of a quote from Albert Einstein, who said, imagination is a preview of life's coming attractions. Imagination is a preview of life's coming attractions. Yeah. The power of the mind and imagination is in that province. Yes. And I've been chewing on that formula that I just shared with you all my life. And there are many levels of insight into the meaning of that, which include how the mind itself is so unlimitedly powerful that it can actually limit itself. Mm. And fully believe, convince us that those limitations are true when in fact they're not. That's a very, very wise and good point you just made. Absolutely. Yeah. And all of this totally applies directly to everything that you write about in your book and that you're teaching through your approach. Yes, yes. I want to make one comment, though. It doesn't mean we ignore the body and that it's all about finding a path to working with the mind. That's very important. The mind is like the hard drive of our computer. So we need to really have a way to access how we use our minds 
in the most beneficial and supportive ways, but it doesn't mean we don't ignore the body. So there are aspects of my book and my teachings and my course that are very, very focused on the physical. For example, food is one of our four primary medicines, and we spend some time in the book and we will in the course discussing how to make food our first primary medicine in a very physical way. There are also mind-body aspects to food as our medicine that are very important as well, how we're thinking and how we're feeling and what we end up eating are intimately connected. But the food as medicine on the physical level is a very, very bodily focus. And that is completely linked always to mind as well. So my teachings aren't simply about you know, find a way to cultivate calmness in your mind and all will be well. We need to address all elements, all levels of our experience as human beings. And the physical body is the one we inhabit. And that's one we need to accommodate. Yeah, exactly. It's a integral wholeness. Yes, I like that term. Yes. Including our emotional well-being as well, our emotional states and like there are people who call us three brain beings, the head brain, the heart brain, and the gut brain or the body brain. And they have to work together in unison. And it's really when they become aligned within us that we can easily access the present moment most readily. That's very well put. Exactly. So those untethered spiritual approaches that ignore everything else and encourage people to just kind of waft away into mental abstraction or spiritual abstraction are just as deluded as those who are completely wedded to materialism and ignore everything else. Yeah, you're probably familiar with this and many of your listeners or two, I call that spiritual bypass. It's a way of not really engaging living in the world and living in the experience of being in a body in a material world. It can be a very safe and necessary place to go for some people that are dealing in, you know, extreme challenges emotionally or in crisis to be able to have those spiritual experiences that can offer them a place of peace. But if we only stay there and engage there, we're not living fully in the real world. And we're only going to actually create more stress internally because it is a form of bypass. We're keeping stuff down in order to ignore it and not kind of move through it and process it. Right. Part of being fully present here and now is actually being fully present here and now with everything that's going on in our physical, emotional, and mental experience. Yes, absolutely. And the notion of being present with difficult feelings is a notion that's not easily accepted or experienced by, I would say, our culture. It wasn't something we were taught in our medical training. And when it had to do with issues of the psyche, it was psychiatry training, and it had to do with really suppressing difficult emotions with pharmaceuticals. But it's really by being present with difficult feelings that we can shift them. What we resist exists, and it's by allowing them, by just being present with them. And there are many different ways we can allow them. We can be present with them. It doesn't mean acting from them. It just means being still and feeling them. I can feel into my body when I'm feeling anxious, and I'll feel where I feel that into my body, and that anxiety will shift. I can feel into my body when I'm feeling angry, and I can breathe into that place or places, and my anger will shift. 
it doesn't mean we shouldn't have anger or we shouldn't have anxiety. There are no shoulds when it comes to emotions. The point is, it's just allowing everything that is our experience, even difficult feelings, because otherwise they remain harbored in us and they create stress in us. And it's by being present, by surrendering to experiencing them, that we can move through them and they can move through us and they can ease out of us. It doesn't mean we never have difficult feelings. Life is life and life is full of stuff, as we say, and we're all going to have feelings that may feel difficult, but how we experience and move through them to a place of ease is by being present with them. In fact, there's a very important study that I'll share with you just on this notion of emotional acceptance, of which there are many more studies of late. I write about this particular one in my book. There was a study of women with breast cancer. And the women were divided into two groups. One group was told to do everything they could to fight the cancer as if it's a bad thing. You know, we do associate cancer as bad in the Western culture in which I was educated, something to be fearful of and to avoid or to get rid of at all costs. And our medications and our surgeries and our chemotherapeutic and radiation treatments are all about getting rid of the bad thing at all costs. Anyhow, these women were divided into two groups. One was told to fight the cancer, do everything you can to get rid of it. And the other group was told to and given tools to get in touch with all the feelings that were arising around their diagnosis and their experience of cancer, whether they were feeling fearful or angry or hopeless or despairing, or maybe hopeful that there was whatever they were feeling, they were given an opportunity to explore and be present with those feelings. And the end result of this study was that those women who were offered the opportunity to allow their feelings without judgment in their entirety, those women had less symptoms of sickness and improved findings on various types of testings relative and related to their illness. So the take-home message is that being with the feelings enabled a physiologic state that supported and enhanced their health and well-being rather than fighting. Fighting creates stress, creates physiologic stress, creates inflammation, will worsen whatever's going on in the body. And I recently came across an interesting line about how people who carry secrets that they keep buried inside tend to have a much higher preponderance of chronic diseases or health conditions. And this connects directly to what you're saying, that we need to actually be present with and honest and open about the things that we're feeling in our lives. And some of the things that we keep secret can be associated with a deep sense of shame. And shame is considered by many people to be the most powerful emotion, even perhaps more so than fear itself. Yeah, that's interesting what you just said. I'm not familiar with that study on secrets, but I'm not surprised at all. Of course, anything that we hold in creates physiologic stress. And I think shame is a very powerful emotion. The notion that it's more powerful than fear. I had some experiences early on in my life that I write about in the introduction to my book that I had a lot of shame around for many, many, many years. (laughs) And when I was starting to think about writing a book, I was told by people in the book writing business, you need to tell your story. You need to tell your story because it's going to help people. So I told my story. And I even told my readers, this story is sometimes still hard to tell. I had a lot of shame around it all. But the act of telling it was really quite liberating. It's not always a story I can easily tell in conversation or in public. It was easier to write about it than to talk about it. 
but it definitely was a huge exhale for me when I wrote about the most shameful experience in my life that was hidden for many years. And I think probably just about all of us have some experience in our life that we consider to be deeply shameful. And because of that shame, it engenders a fear of revealing it to anybody else. Yeah, for sure. For sure. That shame does engender fear. Absolutely. So are there any other key elements to your approach to achieving absolute health that we haven't talked about that you teach in your eight-week course? Oh, thank you for asking, Tony. Let me see. I can briefly go over the structure of the course. I mentioned our four primary medicines. So we're going to focus for four of the modules on our four primary medicines. Food is one of our primary medicines. And I'm going to teach that there's much dogma around what we should and shouldn't eat. And my approach to food as medicine is an individualized one that's unique to each person's constitution. And I will help people find a path to making food their medicine with no shoulds, with no rigidity or rules. We mentioned lifestyle as medicine. So I help people explore the elements of lifestyle medicine and how to find ways to cultivate and make easy gentle shifts to make lifestyle their own medicine. Our third and primary medicine is relationships and community. So we explore how the relationships and communities in our lives are supporting and nourishing us. And if they're not, how to be better supported and nourished by them. Relationships and communities are tremendous sources of healing. Connection and community are tremendous sources of healing. And I also offer people tools for communicating if difficult conversations are difficult. And our fourth primary medicine is actually purpose. We talked a little bit about that before, what makes our heart sing, what gives us cause to wake up in the morning and might keep us up past our bedtimes. That's our purpose. It's literally our life force. It's literally our reason for living. So in this module, I'm going to help people discover if they're not sure their purpose and how to connect with and cultivate their purpose if they're unclear about it. And we do focus a lot on emotional healing. That's another module. I call it healing from the inside out. All healing is ultimately emotional healing. Our thoughts, our feelings, and our physical bodies are intimately and instantaneously connected. And emotional healing is a path to healing on all levels. And you you spoke to that earlier when we spoke about releasing shame and releasing fear. We talked about healing practices and healing partnerships. And finally, I'm going to leave people in the last week of the class with tools for finding their way on their own after the course, how to live the teachings beyond the course. We also have a private online community, which students can hang out together in and share their experiences and have support for what they're going through, offer inspiration and support. And there are a number of other elements to the course. There are going to be weekly practices and reflections for each of the course modules. None of it is required, but they're just practices and exercises and reflection questions that can help people to enhance their understanding and their experience of the teachings. And I think that's about it. So again, when is this happening and how can people find it? Sure. The course is starting on Tuesday, March 28th. It's running for eight weeks. All the live sessions will be recorded. We have a course website where all the recordings will be. So if somebody cannot make the live session, that recording is accessible on the course website. Probably the easiest way for people to get more details about the course and to register is to go to my website, which is transformationalmedicine.org, transformationalmedicine.org. 
And they can go to the upcoming events section and it's a clickable link on March 28th. And if they want something easy to remember, perhaps my email is transformational medicine. That's transformational with an AL at transformational medicine at Gmail. They can always reach out to me directly and I can share with them the course information page. I forgot to mention this. Everybody will be receiving a copy of my book, Beyond Medicine, everybody who registers. So again, is it transformationalmedicine.org? Yep. Okay, so both your email and website are transformational medicine. Okay, okay. good, that's yeah, and clear. the Gmail email. And if anybody's kind of interested but not sure and they want to learn more, please don't hesitate to reach out to me directly via email and I'm happy to answer any questions or concerns they may have. And that email was transformationalmedicine at gmail.com? Yes. Okay. So this sounds like a really wonderful course. I mean, I have always sought to be my own healer to the best of my ability. And part of that came from my own negative experiences with doctors. So I think this course and your approach to healing and medicine is very empowering. Yeah, thank you, Tonio. That is my intention is to give people tools to send them on their way. So while they may need and we may all need, and I have needed myself included practitioners from time to time that we're basically in charge. I like to use the metaphor of driving a car. You know, you're driving the car, I'm in the passenger seat, and you're telling me where you want to go. And I'm suggesting the best route there, but ultimately you're driving the car. So that's my role in the lives of the people with whom I work. I'm a guide, I'm a partner, but I'm not a director. The director lies within. And so when we are reaching out to a medical professional for help, we can tell them what it is that we're wanting and we can take charge of the relationship to some degree at least. I think it's very important to have the most optimal healing practitioner relationship possible. And if we can indeed tell the person what we're needing and feel that we're heard, that's ideal. In fact, I have been a patient and I have needed surgery several times. And I look to that practitioner as the guide with the expertise to be able to direct me towards the surgery that I needed. But that doesn't necessarily have to be a disempowering experience. But in spite of that type of relationship with the surgeon, the more empowering somebody can feel in that type of relationship, the better the experience is going to be. I had a surgeon, I had tumors in my uterus for many, many years. I resisted all the conventional treatments. I had some of my colleagues, one of which was head of a very prominent hospital's OBGYN department, tell me I was crazy for not taking medications for them. And I wasn't crazy for not doing this. And I went to different OBGYNs who said I was crazy. They were so large. Why aren't you doing this? And I was able to live with these tumors for a long time. And I was stubbornly persistent that I wanted to heal myself. And this was a huge lesson for me because I had women in my practice whom I was able to help avoid surgery, but I couldn't heal myself. I tried all sorts of things and I couldn't heal myself. And I ended up having surgery and I chose a surgeon who was a man whom I kind of thought, well, a man is going to be misogynistic and he was an older man and et cetera, et cetera. It turns out he was the most open-minded of all of them. When the other surgeons with whom I consulted said, well, you don't need to have, you know, all your female parts. You're not going to have kids. You're older now. We'll just do a whole hysterectomy. He said, no, I'm just going to take the tumor out. 
And it was a very large tumor. And then I also had tumors in the wall of the uterus. And he took each little tumor inside the walls of the uterus out one by one. And whereas other surgeons would have just taken out everything out, you know, he was empowering in terms of that. And it was also a lesson in surrendering. My surrendering to the surgery was part of my healing. I was so resistant to Western medicine that resistance was creating stress for me. When I finally surrendered, you know, my body was basically saying, you need to have this cut out. And I ended up finding this wonderful surgeon who was the most empowering of all the ones I'd met, in spite of what I had previously assumed about him because of his age and his gender. He previously had a dreadful experience with a male gynecologist many, many years before that. And the surrendering to the surgery and surrendering to his skills and expertise was a remarkable healing in itself. And if we encounter a doctor that we don't feel comfortable with, who doesn't give us a sense of being self-empowered in the relationship with that person as a practitioner, then we can go and seek out somebody who we do feel comfortable with. And I also want to share that my last two encounters with the medical profession in the last few years up here in Vermont have been very positive. I was very, very happily surprised at how receptive and open they were and weren't trying to shove a treatment down my throat. I'm really delighted to know you had that kind of positive experience. But I think a lot of that has to do with our own sense of self-empowerment within the relationship, that if we know what we're wanting and, you know, if we go to a doctor and just give them all of our power and just think that they know what's best, no matter what I think or feel about them or the situation. And they're like God. It's like going to a preacher and assuming that they're the only way we can connect to the divine. And that's so disempowering to approach medicine that way. It's so disempowering to approach anything in our lives in that way. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's very important to find a practitioner that you feel completely comfortable with and at peace and at ease with, and that can be a challenge. Right. Any relationship in any part of our lives can be quite a challenge and to apply the same approach to all the relationships in our life. Don't settle for something that doesn't feel right or that we're not being respected or empowered in the relationship. Absolutely. The process of owning our truth and cultivating our truth in relationship to others is a process of healing. It's a process of learning to honor ourselves, to listen to our inner needs and to honor them and to be able to communicate them in relationship to others, no matter what those relationships are. Trish, it's been wonderful to talk with you again. Thank you. Thank you. It was truly an honor. You take such a deep dive in And you offer up such insightful and wise comments and bring new information as well to the conversation. It was really a pleasure to hang with you (laughs) in conversation today. Thank you. Well, it's wonderful to talk with an actual medical doctor who has the insight and wisdom and understanding of all of this that you have. Thank you. Thank you, Tonio. Could you give us the course logistics again? Sure. The course starts on Tuesday, March 28th, 
It's going to be eight consecutive Tuesdays. The live sessions are conducted over Zoom. If somebody cannot make the live session, the recordings and all the course content and course materials are on the course website that everybody will have access to. It's like a little school that you can go to online where you'll find the recordings and the course materials. And you can access my book and you can access other audios and teaching resources. And you can register for it by going either to my website, transformationalmedicine.org and going to the upcoming events section and going to March 28th. Or you can reach out to me by email personally, and I'm happy to send you the information. And again, it's transformationalmedicine.org is a Gmail address. And I'm happy to answer any questions or concerns anybody has if they're thinking about it, if it appeals to them, but they're not certain and they want to know more. Again, Trish, thank you so much for being back on the Magical Mystery Tour. It's been wonderful to talk with you. Thank you, Tonio. Thank you for having me. And be well and good luck with the course. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone who's listening. That was Patricia Musum. She's a Western-trained medical doctor and pioneer in the synthesis of science, holistic health, and contemporary spirituality, and she's the founder of Transformational Medicine, a whole-person approach to health and well-being. And she's the author of Beyond Medicine, a physician's revolutionary prescription for achieving absolute health and finding inner peace.
And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again or would like to share it with somebody, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. That's soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. 